Good morning again. So uh, last week, um, a friend of uh, mine and one of our elders, Pat, came over to help me uh, figure out how to lay some new bathroom floor. And everybody had kind of told me uh, that, hey, once you do this the first time, uh, it was a similar product to what we used out here, only it looked a little bit different. And once you do it the first time, you're going to know from there forward that you can kind of do it on your own. And after I did it the first time, I became absolutely convinced I'm always going to need someone like Pat in my life. Um, <laughs> that my mind, I almost failed geometry uh, in high school. I, I, that's just true about me. And my mind does not think spatially like that. So I can do the labor, I can do all that stuff, but laying the floor out, um, my mind just does not think that way. We'd be working on tests, I think we need to divide it by this number. And I swear to you, I don't even know how we came up with that number. So, because my mind just doesn't work that way. So I need someone like Pat in my life to help me with those things. And, and I think it's important to know when you need to be reliant on another person, right? Things tend to, to go badly when we don't have the self-awareness to understand, I need someone's help in this situation, right? Think about doing your breaks for a minute. You think, oh, I've got this, I know, the, I know how to do this, and then next thing you know, you're going through your garage because you can't stop, right? Or think about the big project at work that you think, I've got this, I don't need any help. And as the project deadline dooms, uh, looms uh, closer and closer, you find the whole thing falling apart. Or even marriage trouble. I've seen a lot of people uh, kind of get into some trouble and think, oh, I've got this, we can solve this, we, we can handle this. And then uh, by, the, by the time they realize they need the help of a trusted professional, uh, it's gotten really, really Bad, And I've talked a lot in this series about how our American culture struggles with believing that we will be saved by our efforts, that our effort and our work and our good deeds are enough, that I'm, if I'm a good person and I'm a good citizen, that will make me good with, with God. And I think sometimes we just need to own that we need to be relying on someone. And that's what this series is all about. It's about being reliant on Jesus. And so Paul is gonna teach us that, man, there are times and when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our changed lives, when it comes to making progress in life, there are times where we just have to say, I gotta be reliant on Jesus. I've gotta rely on him for my salvation. I've gotta rely on him uh, for, for, for grace. I've gotta rely on him to change my life. I, I've gotta rely on him. And our culture really struggles with this. Our, our, our culture really struggles to own this. And so Paul is going to try to teach us this lesson today uh, by using the life of Abraham. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Galatians uh, chapter 4. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, that our culture wanna believes in this idea that you can accomplish anything you set your mind to. And sometimes you just got to be reliant on another person. And Abraham had to learn this the hard way. Abraham's story actually starts way back in Genesis chapter 12. In that story, uh, God comes to Abram at the time before his, his name was changed to Abraham. And God comes to him and says, go leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to a land I will show you. And the promise is that God, through Abraham, uh, God is going to form a nation through the line of Abraham and that that line of people will be a blessing to the entire world. And we know kind of looking backward now that that nation was Israel and that ultimate blessing was Jesus. 
that Jesus is the blessing of, of the entire world. Jesus is that person. And um, so we, te- we sometimes have a tendency when you hear Abraham, when you hear Moses, when you hear David, we sometimes have a tendency to put these guys on a pedestal, that these are the Bible heroes of our faith. And we forget that these were uh, men and women in the Old Testament, just like we are. And here's what I mean by that. That Abraham, our, our mission statement here is that we're a growing family journeying together to be more like Jesus. That Abraham Abraham was on a journey just like all of us are, and he at times experienced great obedience, and at times he experienced great failure. So there are these times in Abraham's story where he is completely reliant on God, and then there are these times where he has a tendency to be reliant on himself and his knowledge and his wisdom. So let me give you a couple examples. One example is, is when God calls Abraham. He says, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to this land. And Abraham leaves his country, he leaves his people, but he takes with him his nephew, Lot. He brings with him some of his father's household. God told him not to do that. And he ended up doing it. And if you know anything about that story, you know that Lot becomes a total train wreck. As a matter of fact, there comes a time in the story where Abraham has to go rescue Lot uh, from Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you're kind of, as you're telling your family story, if it includes the phrases Sodom and Gomorrah, something's gone wrong, right? And so this is exactly what happened with, with Lot, that, that he has to sit, these are two very wicked cities of the Old Testament. And Abraham has to go there and rescue Lot, and it's kind of a long story. So Abraham in that moment kind of trusts in his knowledge and his, God said, leave it all. He takes uh, Lot and it ends up being a huge, uh, a huge problem. Another kind of example is Abraham and his troop, they end, end up in uh, Egypt. And uh, uh, Abraham gets there and he's like, man, they're going to see And his kind of human wisdom, he thinks, they're going to see how beautiful my wife is, and they're going to kill me so they can have my wife. And he kind of thinks this. He said, I know what I'll do. I will tell them that Sarah is my sister. Boo. No, 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 no. And any guy on the planet will tell you this is a bad plan, right? But this is Abraham's plan. I'll just say that she is my sister. And so Pharaoh ends up taking his wife, Sarah, into his palace. And God inflicts these terrible diseases on Pharaoh until the truth comes out. And then there's a third story. And this is the one Paul's going to seize on. A time where Abraham just trusted in his own wisdom. God had said to Abraham, I'm going to form a great nation through you. And at the time, and for a long time after, it was Abraham and it was Sarah, and that's it. It is hard to form a nation that would not be considered a cult with just two people, right? So there's just the two of them, and they're going, man, we need, we need an offspring. We need, we need the promise to come. What are we going to do? And so Sarah comes up with this idea, and she says, Abraham, why don't you impregnate our servant, Hagar? And Abraham says, well, we need a family line from somewhere. And so he agrees to do that. And they have a son. His name is Ishmael. And the whole thing, we're going to talk about this more a little bit later. It just turns awkward and hard. And I want you to see Abraham and Sarah are just like us. They're trying to obey God. They're trying to follow him. They're trying to be reliant on him. They're trying to give God complete control. But they struggle with that. And then this day comes at the age of 100. At the age of 100, Abraham and Sarah end up getting pregnant, and they give birth to a son, and they name him Isaac. You know why they named him Isaac? The word literally means laughter, right? Because they laughed when they found out she was pregnant. 
because they've been waiting so long. Uh, I would have probably named my son uncontrollable weeping, but uh, they chose laughter, right? At the age of 100, you're, you know, it's just, you know, you're getting older for that, right? And so they end up uh, giving birth to Isaac and he is the promised child. And they, Abraham and Sarah learn a lesson. Here's the lesson. We need to learn it too. God had it all along. God had it all along. And they were so tempted to trust in their own wisdom. And they were so tempted to trust in their own knowledge. And they were so tempted to trust in their own plan. And they needed to learn to be reliant on God for everything. Paul's going to pick up on this story. Let me show you what Paul says in Hebrews 4, or, uh, Galatians 4, excuse me, Galatians 4, 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one of them by a slave woman and another by a free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of the divine promise. All right, so Paul is pointing out here, and he's going to take this illustration even further. He says there are two types of thinking that you can approach life with. Uh, and, and the first type of thinking is what Paul calls the thinking of the flesh, right? The thinking of our humanity. And the thinking of the flesh goes, with, goes this way, if, then I, all right? This is flesh, flesh thinking, if, then I. If I'm going to go to heaven, then I need to be a good person, a good neighbor, and a good citizen. If I'm going to experience life change, then I need to make changes, and I need to work hard to change my life. If I'm going to have happiness, joy, and peace, then I'm going to make this happen. This is the type of thinking, this flesh thinking is the type of thinking that caused Abraham and Sarah to get in such trouble with Hagar. And Paul says there's a certain amount of slavery and servitude that comes with that. I think about, uh, think about having an agricultural job. When a landowner will hire workers, those workers will come in and they will work all day. The farmer will hire the workers. They will work all day long. They might give their entire life to working for one farmer, and they may be treated well. They may be paid well. They may even get health benefits. But with all of their effort and all of their work, they will never really feel like sons and daughters. They are workers. And you can go your whole life thinking that you will be saved by your efforts, uh, that you will be transformed by your efforts, and, and it will be if, then you. You can live that way according to the flesh. But here's Paul's point. You will never really feel at home with God. You will never really feel like you are his sons and your daughters. And this is the flesh system. If, then I. If I'm gonna be okay with God, then I. If I'm going to have eternity secured, if, then I. If, if I'm going to have a changed life, if, then I. And it goes on and on and on. That Man, if it's, if it's going to happen, it's going to be on me. And a lot of people approach life this way, but Paul says there's another way. There's what he calls the divine promise system. And if the fleshly system is if, then I, the divine promise system is because God right? Divine promises because God. I'm going to heaven because God has promised it to me. I'm going to experience life change because God has given me his Holy Spirit. I'm going to have joy, hope, and peace because God has given it to me as, as a gift. And all of it happens through faith because God. And you and I get to choose how we're going to live. Are we going to live by the flesh if then I, are we going to rely on our own strength, our own efforts, our own wisdom, our own doing? 
Or are we gonna live by the divine promise because God? And this divine promise system, it is built on the idea of family. If then I is, is built on the idea of being a slave or being a worker, divine promise is built on the idea of being a son or a daughter. That man, we have a father and he is a good father. We are his sons, we are his daughters. And because of that, we can trust him. We can put our faith in him. And this is really what it comes down to. Are you gonna trust you? Or are you going to trust God and his promises? Let's continue on in the text. All right, verse 24. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery for her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, uh, that you never, uh, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. All right? Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the the inheritance as the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman, uh, woman. And he introduces now another illustration to this. He says, when I'm talking about Hagar, he says, I'm really talking about those who live in Mount Sinai. And again, he introduces another illustration here that Mount Sinai is the the mountain that depicts God giving the law, the 10 commandments, God gave them to Moses. And we've covered this uh, quite a bit in this series already, but one more time, the law is meant to do a lot of good things. It is meant to show us the holiness of God. Uh, it, It is meant to show us our sinfulness and our need for a savior. It is meant to describe Jesus so that one day we would recognize the law become flesh. It was never meant, the law was never intended to be this thing that we saw and we read and said, I've got this, right? The law was never intended to create this pride in us that, man, I can do this, I can achieve this, I can live, I can live out this law perfectly. And a lot of people kind of are approaching life that way. They may not describe it that way, but when you say, how do you know you're good with God? Here's what a lot of people, if not most people say, they say, yeah, I'm good with God. How do you know? I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I, in general, follow the law. And here's the one itsy bitsy little tiny problem with that. Many people don't even know the law. They don't even know the Ten Commandments. I I read a a study the other day that said um, when they were put to the test, uh, Americans recalled more of the ingredients of McDonald's Big Mac hamburgers and members of TV's Brady Bunch more than they could cover the Ten Commandments. So they they broke it down even even more. As they say, out of 1,000 respondents, 80% could name Big Mac's primary ingredient which is two all beef patties. Less than six in 10 knew that one of the 10 commandments was thou shalt not kill. That's bothersome if you're living in a culture where not everybody knows it's wrong to kill, right? right? You know, do you know that one of the commandments is you shouldn't kill? I had no idea. Well, you do now, all right? So 
um, I thought it would be helpful. I want to share with you just so, just so we know, all right? And then we're going to talk about a little bit further. I want to, based on that study, I want to go ahead and just read the Ten Commandments real quick, all right? So that we can know what the commandments are. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. And here's my concern. My concern is that if asked if most people are okay with God, they will say something to the effect of, yes, I'm okay with God. I follow his rules and I obey his commandments. And here's my concern. We don't even know the commandments. And what that means is that if you're trusting in the law and you don't even know the law, you're not hoping in the law. You're just wishing in the law. That's, that's one concern. Another concern is that the law was never intended to do that. The law was never intended to give you a satisfaction that you are good with God. The law was intended to drive you to God for his grace and his kindness, to drive you to Jesus for his grace and his kindness. And there's a really important question embedded in this text. I know the language is kind of hard to follow that. I kind of view as Paul, Paul is writing this, he, he, gave a, uh, he, he gives all this to a scribe who's writing it down. I picture Paul by the time Galatians 4 and 5 comes around, that like he's in an all-out rant at this point. And the scribe's like trying to keep up, but Paul's just like, and Mount Sinai, right? You know, and, and so embedded in this is a question of, do you want to trust in Mount Sinai? Do you want to trust in the law for your salvation, or do you want to trust, Paul calls it, upper Jerusalem, talking about heaven, talking about God. Are you going to trust in your ability to obey the law? Are you going to trust in your ability to obey the law, or are you going to trust in the promises that God has made to you? That's the question of this text. Where is your peace going to come from? Where is your joy going to come from? Where is your security going to come from? Is it going to come from your ability to keep the law, or is it going to come from your trust and your faith in Jesus and the promises he has made to you? There's a story in the New Testament I love. I want to just read it to you and show it to you because I think it's so powerful. It's, uh, it's uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. It's an incident that happened during that time. And it says, two other men, both criminals, were also led with him to be executed, when they came to the place called the skull, they, cruci uh, they crucified him there along with criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers came and they also mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. This was written notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there with him hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal, the other criminal rebuked him and said, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know what I love about this story? The thief on the cross didn't have time to trust in Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. He didn't have time to trust in the law. The only option he had was to trust in the promise. The only option he had was to trust in the promise. And Jesus looked at him and he said, man, I know you've broken half the commandments. I know you've screwed up. He said, but if you will express your faith in me, I am going to make you a promise that I will, I promise I will fulfill this to you. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And the thief on the cross had no choice, right? There wasn't like, am I gonna trust in the law or am I gonna trust in the promise? He really didn't have a choice at this point. He said, all I have right now is I am going to trust in the promise. I'm gonna trust in the promise that my Lord and my Savior has made to me. And so I wanna remind you, we did this a couple weeks ago. But I, I like doing this, so I'm gonna do it again. And I've got the microphone, so you know, what are you gonna do, right? All right. I wanna remind you of some of the promises that you can trust in. These are promises God has made for you uh, on your behalf. And I just wanna, what what I wanna encourage you to do today is to really think through who am I trusting in and what am I trusting in? Am I trusting in myself or am I trusting in the promise? So here's a great promise. In Christ, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care who you've done it with. In Jesus Christ, Anyone can be forgiven of anything. So in Christ, you have found grace. God's promise to you is, he says, I have a plan for your life. I have gifted you. I have given you the Holy Spirit. And I have done all that. I have died for you and risen from the dead. I have given you that spirit uh, of giftedness because I have a plan and I have a purpose for you. Another promise. I have your eternity secured, Jesus says. That you don't have to, through faith, you don't have to worry about the future. You don't have to worry about what's going to happen. Through faith, you can understand that your eternity is secured in Christ Jesus. Another promise, I will give you the Holy Spirit who will change you and transform you and empower you. Jesus says, man, if you will draw close to me, the the Spirit, Paul says, is going to change you and transform and make you more like Jesus. That's what the Spirit's going to do in you as you draw close to God in his word, as you draw close to God in this room, as you draw close to God in the early morning hours when you spend time with him. Those are moments where the Spirit invades your heart and invades your mind, and the Spirit makes you more like Jesus. That is a promise of Jesus to you. So the year I was born is the year my parents became Christians. And I was raised in the church. I just was. that I, I always say, man, every time the church was open, uh, we were there. If they were cleaning the windows, we took up our pew and we watched, right? It just, we were, we were there uh, a lot. And I, I was kind of raised in the church. And this is not anything that was taught to me. I think this happened as the result of my personality. But this thing in church life got embedded to me. That when I would go to Bible camp, I wanted to be the camper that memorized the most Bible verses. Uh, when our youth group was raising money, I wanted to be the kid that raised the most money. When we were building our new building, when I I was growing up, I wanted to be the teenager that volunteered the most time. And most people would look at me and they would say, Steve, that's great. You're memorizing Bible verses, you're giving your money, you're giving your time, and in a way it is great, but here's what I know was going on in my heart, is I wanted to prove myself better. Here, let me say it the way Paul would say it in this text. I was a son of Hagar. 
I was trusting in me. I was trusting in my, in my righteousness. I was trusting in uh, being better than uh, other kids and being better than my neighbor. And this kind, in the midst of all those beautiful things, this ugly thing got embedded in my heart. Prove yourself better. Prove, your, that, prove that you're ahead. Prove that you're, you're a righteous person. And maybe, just maybe, God will approve of you. And it is called being a son or a daughter of Hagar. It is trusting on you instead of trusting on Jesus. And here's the deal with us, guys. We are different from the thief on the cross because the thief on the cross didn't really have much of a choice, right? The thief on the cross, I can't trust in the law right now. I've broken half the commandments, right? And I'm about to die. All I have is the promise. We're different than that because most of us have time. And we have time to play the game. We have time to play this game where we feel better than our neighbor and we feel we've got this and we feel that we are ahead of other people, that we feel we are good with God because we are good people. And here's what happens to that, Paul says. Paul says, when you trust in you instead of trusting in Jesus, here's what happens to you. You become a slave. You become a slave to fear. You know what that fear is? I've seen it a hundred times. What that fear is, man, I'm trusting in me. Have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Have I been righteous enough? That is slavery. It is slavery to fear. You are slaves to judgment. This was one I struggled with my entire life. You are slaves to judgment. Because to feel good about you, you have to feel bad about them. And so that judgment becomes a slavery. You're slave to judgment. You are slave to delusional pride, right? You become a slave to delusional pride. You start buying what you're selling. Think maybe I am better than my neighbor. Maybe I am better than the person sitting across from the pew. Don't look right now at all. All right, so, right? And you start believing in this delusional pride that you are righteous and you are good and maybe you can earn your own salvation. And the biggest piece of slavery at all is we never experience the joy of relationship with Jesus because we never fully trust him. And so maybe today is the day where you proclaim for the first time maybe, I'm done playing the game. I am a sinner saved by grace. I am a sinner. I can't earn my way, I can't be good enough, I have broken too many of the commandments, right? I am a sinner saved by grace. I'm not gonna live in Mount Sinai, I'm not gonna be a son or daughter of Hagar, I'm not gonna trust in me, I'm gonna trust in Jesus. I am saved by grace. I am a child of God, loved by him. I rely on him for his mercies every day. I trust in him, not in me. I trust in his righteousness, not in mine. I trust in his holiness, not in mine. And I believe him for his promises. And all of this happens through faith in him. I want to go back to the farm for a minute. I grew up working on farms. And almost every farm that I've ever worked on, you have two groups of people. You have hired hands, hired workers who work on the farm, and many times there isn't an, an, an external thing that motivates a worker, uh, a paid worker on a farm. And uh, the external thing that motivates most of them is this, J-O-B, right? They need the job. They need the money. And so they work on the farm, and there's an external motivator there. They work on the farm because they need the money. They have a family to support. They, they, they do all of that, all right? And, and that, that motivates their work. 
that motivates their ambition, that motivates what, what they do in. And, and there is this silly notion that has gotten kind of hold that if you are a person that believes in grace and, and you are a person that believes in Jesus, that there is this silly notion that there is no effort in Christianity. And, and that is not true. It is what is motivating the effort, right? Are you being motivated by an effort that, that you're fearful that you haven't done enough? Are you being motivated by an effort that you feel that you've not, good, that you've not been good enough? No, no, that's, that's category one. That's a worker mentality. But there is a second type of person that works on a farm, and that is family. That is sons and daughters. And some of the hardest workers I've ever met on a farm are sons and daughters. So what motivates them to do their work on a farm? What would motivate a son or daughter to work hard on a farm? Here's what motivates them. They love the farmer. They love the family farm. They, it, it is love that drives them to effort. And so it's not that in true Christianity, there's not any effort. There is effort in Christianity. Read the Bible. It talks about effort all the time. It's what's driving that effort. Is it a worker mentality? Have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Am I righteous enough? Is that, because that's slavery. There's no peace in that. There's no joy in that. There's no life in that. Is that what drives the effort? Or is it, I love the Father? and I am his son, or I am his daughter, empowered by his Holy Spirit, I want to live out my true calling in Christ. And this is the step some of you need to take, is that, man, I am a son or daughter of God. I am a sinner saved by grace. He has adopted me into his family. And then there's another step that some of you might need to take. So let me finish up the story with Hagar. You know what happened with Hagar? So Abraham and Sarah decide they're going to start their family line through Hagar, and she gives birth to a son named Ishmael, and they try to make Hagar and Sarah uh, living in the same household. They try to make that work for a little while, but anybody with a drop of common sense knows that that dog won't hunt, and that relationship started to fall apart between Hagar and Sarah, right? They started to snip at each other. They started to not get along, and so Abraham tried to make this work. He tried to make Hagar and Sarah work for a while, and then finally he felt emboldened by the Spirit to make a decision, and he had to send Hagar away. Some of you are trying to live with Hagar and Sarah in the same house. And you love Jesus, you trust in Jesus, but Hagar is still present. And you still, there is this part of you that still trusts in you, you still trust your own righteousness. You still trust your own effort. And, and you have Hagar and Sarah trying to live in the same house. Maybe the decision for you today is to say, man, I'm going to send Hagar away once and for all. That Hagar's not going to work in the same house with, with Sarah. They're not getting along at all. And some of us, this is my life growing up, is I try, man, I, I believe I was a Christian. I love Jesus. But Hagar and Sarah were living in the same household. They were. For most of my young adult life growing up, uh, for me, what finally woke me up was I had a situation that I couldn't control and I couldn't manage. It was a tragedy in my life, I could, and I was forced to reliance on Jesus. That's what happened to me, and I fell in love with it. Once I experienced it, I fell in love with it. But for a lot of my life growing up, Sarah was there, love, you know, the, the promised uh, the, Sarah and Isaac, the promised one, the, the, the trusting in God's promises was present. But Hagar was also there. 
I gotta be righteous. I gotta be good. I gotta be, I gotta follow the rules. I, I've gotta make it happen if God's gonna truly love me and care about me. And so some of you need to make the decision Abraham made. I'm gonna send Hagar on her way. And I am just going to be a child of promise. I'm gonna fully trust in Jesus for maybe the very first time. I'm gonna trust in him for his grace. I'm gonna trust in him for his promises. I'm gonna trust in him for his, power, for, for his power. I am going to trust in him and in him alone. And like I said, it becomes easy in church world to really play this game, right? We've all done it, where you're driving to church and you're snip, your whole family's snipping each other. You walk up to the church door, how you doing? Praise the Lord, hallelujah, I am fantastic. And we learn to play this righteousness game that everything's good, look at me, I'm holy, everything's good, social media's made it so much worse, everything's fantastic. And slowly we begin to trust in us when there is such a better way out there and it is called trusting in Jesus. It is called relying on him for his promises. And when that happens, the judgment passes away because I don't need to judge you, you're just like me, we're sinners saved by grace. So judgment falls away, pride falls away, because what have I done? I've just trusted in Jesus. Jesus has done all the work. Pride slips away, and we find this new life where grace is the sweet spot, and we're walking in it, and we're loving it, and it is life transforming, and that's what I want to invite you to. All right? This is not terribly quippy, or it's why it's not on a slide, but send Hagar on her way. I'm going to get t-shirts with that made, right? Send Hagar on her way, right? Send her on her way, right? That's slavery. That's slavery, slavery to fear, slavery to pride, slavery to a lot of things. Send slavery away and enjoy being a child of promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to enjoy your promises. We want to live in your promises. Paul draws this parallel in this story of what happened with Hagar of, man, we can do this. We can make this happen. We can trust in ourselves and, and the devastation that brought, the, the slavery that brought, the servitude that brought to, to things that were not good. And then you compare that to trusting in you for the promise. And you demonstrated to Abraham and Sarah that you had it all along. And may that be our reality. May today, as we get ready to receive communion, may we remember that through the cross and through your resurrection, you have demonstrated to us you have it and have had it all along. We can fully trust you. We can tr fully enjoy your promises. We can walk in faith not reliant on ourselves, but reliant on you. And man, with sonship and daughtership, there comes joy and peace and salvation and contentment. May we walk in it today, fully trusting in you as our good father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.